call your attention to God's word that I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll read verses 11 and 12, but I'll be preaching on verse 11. I want to just call attention to the fact that as many of the letters of the New Testament do, that that the beginning of a letter is full of, of truth about who we are in Christ, and then this, the, the letter then shifts and starts to make some practical applications of that. And that's what's taking place here. There's a shift as Peter begins to think about how the gospel shapes our life. And uh, there are times when a subject comes that really calls and deserves this kind of attention that I'm going to, I'm going to stop on just this one verse to preach on verse 11. I'll read verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. War is devastating and destructive and deadly. We're largely insulated from that here in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Not completely. Some of you are or have served in the military, and so you, you have seen these things up close and personal. Some of you have family that are even now living in war zones. The history of your countries may be histories that have been full of bloodshed. War is devastatingly destructive. Peter calls lusts an act of war against your souls. We serve a living Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter has said that we are now children of God, chosen by him, a beloved people. And that new relationship places us in a position in his family that not only argues against practicing the sin of lust, but it warns against it. And my purpose today is to warn you about the devastating destruction of lust. I'm going to begin just with that subject, the devastation of lust, and then speak about the forms that that takes focusing especially on the main uh, aspect of lust that has to do with sexual immorality, and then moving to what Peter urges you to abstain from fleshly lusts. I'll put it this way that I hope that you can remember it. 
Lust wages war against your soul. Wage war back. Start with the devastation of lust. I hope I've been blunt enough, but let me continue to be blunt. Lust does indeed wage war against your soul. It's an enemy, not a friend. It brings devastation and destruction, not delight, as it claims to. You cannot give it room in your life. Cannot. You can't treat it as if it were a little lost kitten that is cute and cuddly and as if no one will notice that it is there and it won't have any impact on your life. It's a private pleasure which won't hurt anyone. That's a lie. It does hurt. It hurts you. It hurts those you love. And in the context of this passage, Peter says it hurts your relationship with God. And I'll come to the way it hurts you and your relationship with others. But I want you to see how Peter says it hurts your relationship with God. It begins with the way that Peter addresses you. He says, beloved. And that's a common word, and you might rush over that. You might think of it as just a way of addressing someone, like we might begin any old letter that we write. Dear John, dear Jane. That word dear has that idea of being beloved, but we write that and it, it may not, uh, not have much meaning. Just a way of addressing someone. But Peter uses it deliberately. Remember how he has addressed us. Remember who you are in Jesus. You are loved by Jesus, beloved by him. You are a chosen people. You are You are now living stones being built up in Jesus Christ, who is the living stone. You have a beloved relationship with God and with each other. And because of the love that he has shown you, your sin damages your relationship with God. It damages the closeness of your walk with him. You know how this works in personal relationships. When you have offended someone, there is a distance that is drawn into that relationship. Walk on eggshells around each other, wondering whether or not you are forgiven or if you are right with them. The same is true in your relationship with the Lord. The closeness of your walk is damaged by sin. I want you to listen very carefully to this because we believe that we are not saved by our goodness. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It is not by works of righteousness which we are saved. I read from Titus Chapter 3 is our call to worship for this very purpose. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
But by his mercy we are saved. It is all of grace. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. Words that I hope are very familiar to you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our salvation is by grace, not by works. But sin still damages your relationship. God prepared you for good works. He prepared those good works beforehand, that you should walk in them. When you do not walk in them, there is an estrangement that takes place. Your conscience bothers you. The Holy Spirit of God himself prompts you to know that there is sin, to know that there is confession and repentance that is necessary. Sin, in general, wages war against you and your soul. And remember that Satan can't separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate us. It's a glorious truth. You cannot lose your salvation. But Satan would love to sow seeds of division between you and God to show, sow seeds of, of that alienation and strangeness that happens when we aren't right with him. It is a great truth that we are indeed built on the living stone, being built up as a spiritual building as living stones, being made into the temple of God. If you follow that analogy of being built up, fleshly lusts come from the gutter, not from Christ. They come from the loves of your former life. They come, from, uh, they come from the darkness that was part of who you once were. But Christ has set you free from that. He set you free, gloriously free from its penalty and powerfully free from its effects and the way in which you once walked. In his second letter, Peter describes it this way. And for the kids, this might gross you out. Peter says this. It has happened to them according to a true proverb. A dog return, returns to his own vomit. It is gross, isn't it? And maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've seen a dog go back and lick up what it has just thrown up. It turns our stomach. That's what sin is. When we as children of God return to our own vomit. Peter also compares it to a pig having been washed. You know where the pig goes? Back to the mud and the, pil- the filth of the pigsty. 
fleshly lust damages your relationship with God. It wars against your soul. Remaining sin plagues all of us, and we can take comfort in the grace of God and the promise to forgive our sins. But at the same time, you cannot play around with it. Cannot be cavalier about your sins and saying, well, I'm forgiven in Christ, and then go on kind of uh, riding away with that sin. Do not treat it as nothing. Remember that Satan doesn't play nice. Lust is an act of war. It is not an act of a friend. It grieves God. It costs the blood of Christ to redeem you. This is important. It is so important that Peter says, I beg you to hear me. I beg you to abstain from fleshly lusts. And it's the Holy Spirit working through Peter that is speaking as well. The Holy Spirit begs you to abstain from fleshly lust. As the minister of the gospel to you, I beg you, do not play around with lust. I beg you to abstain. So what is lust? Well, it actually has many faces, and this is my second point, the many faces of lust. The lust of the flesh refers to any number of desires that tempt you. It does especially refer to sexual sins, and I'm going to come to that in a moment. But you do need to hear that that Peter and and Christ is confronting a broader sense of the desires of this world that can plague you. They are all devastating. They all have consequences that damage your relationship with God. So, when you hear the idea of fleshly lust, you can think, of those things that tempt you, that are of this world. Think of desires for pleasures of all sorts. Think of desires for for food, desires even for, uh, for comfort or music. Think of desires that long for the fashion of this world or the, the beauties of certain things that come around you. You can also think of it in terms of desires for, for status, desires for the rewards or the standing of those you see around you, those that may have advancements or more earthly things. And in this light, you might think of the word covetousness or greed. These are the lusts of the flesh. Matthew Henry nails it when he uses the word indulgence and luxury to describe the desires of the flesh, the lusts of the flesh. I like the way the commentator Boyce also says this. It is to live a life which is dominated by the senses. It is to be gluttonous in food. 
effeminate in luxury, slavish in pleasure, lustful and lax in morals, selfish in the use of possessions, regardless of all the spiritual values, extravagant in the gratification of worldly, earthly, and material desires. The flesh's desire is forgetful of, blind to, or regardless of the commandments of God. That, may, that means that lust has many faces. As you meditate on this passage this week, you may hear what I have to say next and say, well, sexual lust is not something I struggle with. But don't write off this passage as something that doesn't apply to you. I would uh, challenge you to say that, uh, to, to hear what I have to say next about sexual desire, because I think it does likely afflict every living being in some way. But don't stop there. Do take time to talk about the many faces of lust and see if there are others that hold sway in your life. If you are giving room for, uh, for these other pleasures or other desires that can come to dominate your life. And think of them as an act of war, an act that diverts your attention from God, an act that damages your relationship with him. And here, Peter's pleading once again, instead of longing for the things of this world Peter begs you to live as a sojourner, a pilgrim, one who has a heavenly citizenship, thinking of the words that have just gone before, that you are a holy nation. And having this nature, he begs you to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul. Lust has many faces, but I do think it has a main face. And that is the face of sexual sin. This would be, I would say, the plainest meaning of the words that are used here. It fits well in the context of Peter's letter, the aspect of sexual immorality was something that was openly celebrated in the, in the world in which the gospel came, it was part of religious practices. There were temple prostitutes that were part of the way in which people would, quote-unquote, worship their gods, the false gods, and idolatrous gods. But it's not just Peter's world or the world into which the gospel came. It's our world, too, that is idolatrous and is consumed by sexual sin. And Peter says that these desires wage war against your soul. It is not a friend. It is not a private sin. And I say that because of the word that Peter uses here. He says to abstain from fleshly lust. 
That means he doesn't just warn against the external acts of sexual immorality. Those you may identify and say, well, yes, adultery is clearly a sin. God has commanded, you shall not commit adultery. But here, Peter takes the teaching of Jesus as he sat at Jesus' feet in the Sermon on the Mount, and he applies it in this warning. Do you remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. There's those external acts of sexual immorality. These are the things that you would say, well, yes, sleeping with someone else's spouse or with someone else when you are married, that's clearly a sin. Or the other actual physical acts of prostitution or uh, premarital sexual relationships. We say, yes, we can identify those. That's what the commandment is about. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says that the commandment is about something more. The commandment touches your heart, not just your external actions. So Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you have looked at a woman with lust, that you have broken the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In other words, there are different ways that you can commit adultery. You can also commit adultery of the heart. And this is where perhaps the most insidious attack of Satan comes in our culture today. It is in the area of the adultery of the heart and in the area of the, the use of and the prevalence of pornography all around us today. And what I have to say, I'm going to direct and, and, and I want to speak especially to the men of the congregation because this seems to ensnare men especially. But let me caution you to say that it is not just men that are prone towards sexual sins of lust or adultery of the heart. You women are too. In fact, it is an increasing uh, observation that pornography is now also ensnaring and enslaving women as well as men an epidemic that just grows and grows, and it does have devastating effects. Pornography has become so common because of the internet these days that it ensnares many. Perhaps it has ensnared you. Don't be fooled. It isn't harmless. I've said this once, I'll say it again. It is not a friend. It is not private. It harms you. And it harms your relationship with others. 
For those of you who are married, it harms your relationship with your wife. It feeds your desire for sexual gratification to the point that it comes to consume your thoughts. There is an addictive nature to it. So much so that in your downtime, your thoughts begin to turn in that direction. It gravitates there. More than gravitates, there is a... a, a, a magnetic draw to that thought pattern in your lives. Well, that's damaging in and of itself. That's damaging in it being wasteful. It's uh, damaging in the fact that gratification uh, comes to be sought outside of the marriage bed. It also shapes your taste for sexual gratification. To keep this PG. What you watch shapes what you want. It damages you. It sets pathways in your brain as to what is pleasing. So that what you watch is what you want. Because of this, it does indeed damage not only you, but damages your spouse. Your expectations come to be based on what you view. It begins to force your spouse into that mold. It communicates to your spouse that she is not enough. Communicates to her that she is not the only one in your mind. You don't think that hurts. You are gravely mistaken. Jesus talks about it as adultery for a reason. It is a sin against God, but it's a sin against other people as well. Sin against your spouse, and it hurts deeply. For you, sex has come to be merely the satisfaction of yourself rather than the mutual intimacy that God so beautifully provides for us. If you're not satisfied with your wife, porn leads you to satisfy that desire somewhere else. Note well that it is good to be restrained from the physical act, the actual act of adultery. It does, that physical act has devastating effects, is a waging of war and has all of the destruction that follows behind it. But you might have concluded that since you are not committing the actual act of adultery, that it is not damaging. It is It is. It is an act of war by Satan, full of all of the devastating consequences that go along with it. Adultery of the heart strikes a blow at the very source 
of the most intimate relationship that God has given to us in this life, the relationship of a husband and his wife. Fleshly lusts wage war against your soul. Wage war back. Peter says to abstain from fleshly lusts. Note that he doesn't say moderate your fleshly lusts. He doesn't say uh, manage your fleshly lusts. He says abstain. That means to cut it off completely. Don't have any of it. There is no room in your life. There is no room in your soul for fleshly lust. Abstain means to cut it off completely. This is a matter for prayer. It is a matter for serious action. And if you have been playing around with that temptation... If you have been ensnared by pornography, then wage war back. Cut it off. Begin by by naming it for what it is. It is sin. It is lust. It is under the heading of committing adultery. It is forbidden by Christ. It's not only damaging to your relationship with others, but it is a sin against the living God. Name it for what it is. Recognize it for what it is. And then deal with lust the way you deal with every sin. Repent of it and wage war against it. By the grace of God, by the mediation by Christ, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Wage war against it. Put it to death. I really like Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3. He talks about how we are united to Christ, and his conclusion is this. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he lists them. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming against the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Put to death these sins. By the power of Christ, name them for what they are and deal with them as the sins that they are. Repentance, you're cutting it off. Positively, Peter has called us beloved by God. Positively, he calls your attention to the fact that we are united to Christ, and so there is a setting our mind on Christ, putting off of the old man and his deeds, putting on the new, which is renewed in the knowledge of God, according to the image of him who created him, Colossians 3. So we do put to death the old, and we put on Christ. We love him And we love the things that he loves. And specifically in this context, we tenderly and exclusively learn 
with our spouses to love each other and give ourselves to each other. Much more can be said about this positive aspect of the purity of life that is sexual purity. It includes the single person. It includes protecting and loving your spouse and the marital bed and how that is, how that is part of God's answer. And if you're having trouble in these areas, please speak to me. Please talk to your spouse because by naming it, you're bringing it into the light. And by speaking to someone else, you're bringing it into the light. And that is part of waging war against an enemy that likes to fight in the dark. Name it. Identify it. Bring it into the light so that you can wage war against it. As I said, much more could be said about this. But my purpose today has been to follow Peter's uh, pattern here, to warn you of the devastating destruction that comes when you indulge lust. For lust indeed wages war against your soul. So along with Peter, along with the Holy Spirit, I beg you to wage war back to abstain from fleshly lusts. Let's pray. Oh God, in confronting sin, you shine a light on us that is piercing. I realize, oh God, that sexual immorality is something that is very common in our lives today. It does take many forms, and I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to recognize the many face of fleshly desires, and especially that face of sexual immorality. God, I pray that we would indeed, by your Spirit, wage war against that desire, to wage war against the sins that wage war against us. I pray, O oh God, that we would recognize it for what it is, and commit to a life of purity, we would recognize how devastatingly damaging it is to ourselves, to our spouses, to others, and to our relationship with you. Having said that, O oh God, we pray for forgiveness. O oh God, we pray that you would cleanse us of these stains. We do so full of faith, knowing that you have invited us to come into the light, to come to you and to confess all of our sins, and that you will forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we'll close where we began with Psalm 51, that psalm of forgiveness, the psalm of repentance, I mean, and the assurance of the forgiveness that is given to us in Christ. Stand and sing Psalm 51D.